Welcome back, dear listeners and changemakers, to this new episode of the Sparker podcast. In this edition of the show, I had the privilege to talk to Navi Raju, one of the experts on frugal innovation. Frugal innovation is a mindset and innovation approach that has its origins in the developing world, where amazing innovations and products are developed in the most difficult of environments. In this episode, you'll get to know numerous inspiring examples of frugal innovation from India, Africa and beyond. That said, the power of frugal innovation can also be harvested in the rich economies of the global north and can be applied by small and large organizations alike. For that, you learn some key principles and best practices in this conversation with Navi. Frugal innovation even has the potential to transform the entire economy to the better, towards a more sustainable and socially inclusive way of doing business. So get ready for this engaging conversation with Navi Raju, the Indian-French-American innovation and leadership thinker, TED speaker, contributor to the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, co-author of the book Frugal Innovation, and also my guest in this episode of the Sparker podcast. Please enjoy this conversation with Navi Raju. So today we are at the um, Gottlieb Dutweiler Institute on the uh, conference uh, Trend Talk in German or Trend Day in English. And we are having the conversation at this conference about the concept of frugal innovation. And you, Navi, thanks for taking the time. You are one of the experts about frugal innovation. And you also gave a speech today. So it was very interesting. And just to start things off, why not uh, tell us uh, kind of in a nutshell as a first uh, take on it, What is this concept of frugal innovation? A frugal innovation is the ability to do better with less. That is the ability to create more economic and social and ecological value while making the most of all the resources you have. And uh, this concept actually emanates, emanates from um, developing world, um, places like India, Africa and South America, where you see millions of entrepreneurs with very limited resources using their sheer ingenuity to come up with simple solutions that are affordable and accessible to the masses, whether it's in healthcare, education, or energy. So this is the whole idea that um, you can come up with very effective solutions like MacGyver, <laughs> using limited resources. This is what is known as frugal innovation, which is the ability to do better with less. Very nice. Thanks for outlining the kind of core principle of it. Um, so if I understand it correctly, it's about making scarcity your friend, working with it and turn it maybe even into a strength or something along those lines? Absolutely. So essentially, as I say, necessity can be the mother of invention, but scarcity is the grandmother of invention, <laughs> right? So a couple of examples, right? Uh, one is from India, where a porter named Mansuk Prajapati has developed a fridge made entirely of clay that doesn't use any electricity and can keep fruits and vegetables fresh for many days and doesn't operate with electricity and it's 100% biodegradable. So that means that essentially 
this is a village where there is no electricity, but there is an abundance of clay, earth. So he's using what is abundant, which is earth, clay, and make a fridge out of it, right, to create value so that the local villagers can maintain their food fresh for several days. Another good example of turning uh, scarcity to an advantage is uh, in Africa, where 80% Africans don't have access to financial services or electricity, but 80% Africans have a mobile phone. So you see in places like Kenya, where they have a service called M-Pesa, that enables today half the population in Kenya to send, receive money using the mobile phone without having a bank account. And today, 60% uh, of the country's uh, GDP is transacted through the system. And so these two examples show that, you know, with frugal innovation, you learn to see the glass as being always half full. So rather than complaining about the resources you don't have, you learn to identify celebrate and make the most of the resources you already have. Super. Thanks a lot for giving these examples and already uh, showing a lot of the power of the frugal innovation mindset. Um, I think in these examples, you already uh, get a hint of um, um, how um, different in scale these solutions can be or in scope or in magnitude or whatever. So, um, Could you maybe even give um, a third example where you have uh, enormous um, improvement factors or uh, factors in making uh, a good product cheaper, more accessible? So, I mean, in, in some instances, we might talk about 100x um, improvements or something like that. So could you give us It, more uh, examples? Christian, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, um, one thing you should remember about frugal innovation is that uh, indeed, as you rightly pointed out, we are talking about an order of magnitude of 10x, 100x. That means indeed, it's about uh, you know delivering 10 times or 100 times more value using 100 times fewer resources or selling a product that is 10 times cheaper. So a couple of good examples, uh, one from emerging market and one maybe from developed countries. Um, uh, there are millions of babies that are born prematurely around the world and they're kept in incubators in the Western world that cost $20,000 uh, and they require electricity to operate. Uh, which is unreliable in developing world and $20,000 is quite expensive for uh, places like India or Africa. So five students from Stanford uh, invented an uh, infant warmer, a baby incubator that cost only $200, uh, is designed cleverly like a mini sleeping bag and uh, it doesn't require electricity and it can keep the baby at constant temperature for many hours. And again, it costs only $200. That means 1% or 100 times cheaper than the incubators we find in the West. And yet this simple product has saved the lives of over 300,000 babies worldwide. So that's one example. The second example is the car company, uh, French car company, Renault that uh, in 2004 launched uh, the world's cheapest car, which is uh, Logan for 5,000 euros. And then in 2015, they launched in India a car called the Quid for 3,500 euros. Then last year, they launched in France the Europe's uh, cheapest electric car, 
Dacia Spring for just 12,000 euros. And uh, so again, this shows that, you know, um, you can actually combine frugality with sustainability as well. And, um, and what is fascinating for me is that, you know, uh, to date, uh, neither American car companies or Japanese car companies or German car companies have been able to match uh, the frugal performance of Renault. Uh, that's because they've been doing it for about 20 years now. And as you rightly said, so they learn how to gradually make the products increasingly more affordable, but also more and more sustainable as well, like this electric car uh, shows. Thanks for adding these two examples. And I have um, one follow-up question for each of the examples. Um, so one of them goes into the uh, innovation method or mindset. And the other one uh, with Renault, I think it's already a nice hint at Well, in Western societies or rich economies and so on, you can apply that system as well. It's not just about uh, um, developing countries and so on. So um, let me take one after the other. Um, when I got introduced to the concept of frugal innovation, I also thought, well, um, interesting. How can it be compared to, let's say, um, design thinking, a very... A famous design method here in in the West, I would say, and obviously one of the main methods in Silicon Valley, etc. So, um, just by coincidence, you naming the uh, baby incubator example, I once heard the story of um, this baby incubator, also in the context of design thinking, where they found out that kind of let's say just donating. Western high-tech incubators to developing countries doesn't make sense because when they break, they can't repair them. So with the design thinking method, uh, one result was, again, what is abundant? In a, uh, what are the skills in, in the market that it shall be shipped to? And they realized, why not use um, the car light to provide the heat? Because car lights are available. People know how to repair car lights. And that's how a new sort of incubator design was created. But the one you are mentioning, um, I would say is, you could almost say kind of frugal innovation is like design thinking on steroids. It's even one more, uh, one level more. Is that a fair assessment or how would you respond I, to that? I agree with your uh, uh, analysis here because it turns out that the students from Stanford University who designed this uh, baby incubator called Embrace actually took a course uh, called Design for Extreme Affordability. So it is about combining design thinking with this objective of making innovation extremely affordable. So we come back to the idea, you know, 100 times, right? So it's about design thinking applied to creating a solution that is 100 times cheaper than what is available today in the marketplace and can be maintained easily. So indeed, what happened is that when the students initially went to India the, from Stanford University, they looked at Western incubators and they did what is known as de-featuring. So they tried to create a simpler version of the same incubator that you find in the West, and that didn't work out. And that's when the design thinking happened. That means that they realize that they have to go in the field, study the actual customer needs, and then design from scratch first a prototype. 
because design thinking means rapid testing and experimentation. And that's why the first principle in my book uh, on frugal innovation, we call it engage and iterate. That means you have to go in the field, engage with the end users, understand their pain points, and then create first a prototype, test it out, and then iterate on it until you get it right. So yes, um, and that's why frugal innovation, I would say that uh, builds on two existing well-known concepts. One is design thinking, which allows you to identify exactly what the customer needs are, and then come up with a good enough solution that perfectly addresses their needs without any uh, superfluous features. And the other concept that it connects with is open innovation. Uh, because open innovation, as you know, uh, is a concept coined by Henry Chespro that invites companies to partner with other companies to uh, co-create solutions. And here also what we see with frugal innovation is that um, in the case of coming back to the incubator, um, the baby incubator, um, you need to work with local NGOs, nonprofit organizations, or health clinics to test and implement a solution and then scale up the solution. So open innovation also has some synergies with frugal innovation. Because in order for frugal innovation to be implemented successfully, uh, you need to partner with different stakeholders. Um, so that's why I would say that uh, design thinking and open innovation can become uh, enablers in a way or accelerators of uh, frugal innovation. That's interesting. Thanks for kind of translating it uh, into uh, other well-known uh, methods. Um, The other example you brought was um, Renault, an example of a Western uh, company uh, applying that same uh, frugal innovation mindset. Um, and obviously, uh, they are more of an example than a rule for Western companies or organizations. So as another comparison uh, to better understand the frugal innovation concept, how would you contrast it to uh, the state of innovation um, in rich countries or um, comparing to how innovation is done in the West generally. Uh, you've been living in Silicon Valley for quite some time, so maybe you can give an example from there, but feel free just to help us contrast it too. Yes, I lived for uh, 13 years in Silicon Valley, right? And uh, the most famous innovation that came out from Silicon Valley, of course, is the iPhone. Um, so let's look at iPhone, right? So an iPhone cost about $1,000. And that means that it can be only bought by 10% of the world population. So 90% of the world population cannot afford an iPhone. So that means that um, an innovation that is developed in Silicon Valley tends to be quite expensive uh, and therefore not affordable for the large groups of humanity. Um, secondly, it's uh, over-engineered. Right? Today, many research studies show that we use maybe five to 10% of the functionality of an iPhone, right? So we are paying $1,000 to buy something that we use, of which we use only 5% of the features. So you see how wasteful this innovation is. So if you look at frugal innovation, it has, look at the two words, right? Uh, the frugal means two things. It means that the product that you develop has to be affordable and accessible to the masses. 
And secondly, it means that you develop the product frugally. That means that you don't invest too much money and too many resources to develop the product. But an iPhone, to develop an iPhone, uh, Apple employs thousands of engineers and spends billions of dollars in R&D. And here are some shocking statistics. Uh, the large companies in the world, the thousand large companies in the world, spend about $800 billion in research and development every year. But it turns out that 85% of products launched in the marketplace fail. So you can imagine how wasteful innovation is today because it means that it is not frugal, first of all, right? Because you're investing $800 billion to uh, innovate. And more worrisome is that it is having no economic impact or social impact because many of these products fail. And even if they have economic impact, as you can see in the case of iPhone, it doesn't benefit 80% of humanity or 90% of humanity. So that's what I learned, and that's why I left Silicon Valley a couple of years ago, because I realized that I want to, you know, leave, now I live in Paris um, and in Europe, because I think that Europe uh, tends to um, try to find a compromise between uh, technology innovation, social inclusion, and environmental protection. So that's what Frug Innovation does, right? It tries to create solutions that are affordable and accessible to as many people as possible and that are produced in a socially responsible way and in an ecologically sound fashion. Thanks a lot for this uh, amazing answer and uh, wide-spanning answer. Um, one thought uh, came to mind um, uh, to develop the iPhone for the first time just to stick with that example, there's a lot of investment needed. And once the, let's say, the concept of iPhone or a smartphone has been established and the, the whole world sees that it works, it becomes easier to start, let's say, copying or um, applying frugal innovation to the same kind of product to improve it with that approach. Um, but could, could one say that there's also a limit to the concept of frugal innovation, where you could say more is still more, uh, just because, I don't know, um, the first iPhone or, I don't know, cancer research, or are there some areas where you say, yeah, fair enough, here we cannot approach the situation with frugal innovation. Does it have its limits? I, I, I think I would answer that another way. I guess if you come back to iPhone, right? I mean, today we are, you know, going to have maybe a, the version 13, 14, whatever, right? So what happens with, I, let's stick with iPhone, right? So the issue with something like iPhone is that uh, you need to keep adding more features to justify the novelty. In other words, an iPhone 13 cannot have fewer features than iPhone 12 or 10, right? So, so you are this innovation arms race going on, right? That means you keep adding more features increasingly. But Frug Innovation is trying to go in the opposite direction <laughs> of figuring out how do we remove more and more features without losing the essence of what the product does. And uh, Einstein famously said that uh, any uh, fool can make things more complex, but only a genius can make things simpler. 
So that means that frugal innovation requires more creativity to remove features, right? And that's what is happening right now. For example, in the cars, there's something called light weighting, where because of the regulatory requirements, uh, car companies, especially in the Western world, have to make the cars lighter so they can you know, reduce the emissions. So this is called light weighting. So that means that engineers are figuring out how to remove uh, the weight of cars by either shaving off materials or substituting things like steel, aluminum with lighter materials like fiber, right? So that's another kind of innovation where you, instead of adding things, whether it's feature or weight, you are trying to remove features or weight to make it, you know, either more affordable or more sustainable. So I would say that essentially, uh, I think the, the, there is, uh, you know, there's a long way to go before we reach the limits of innovation, simply because of the fact that there are so many needs unmet today in the world by uh, people in developing world. So let me give you some statistics, right? So uh, if every citizen in the world consume like an American, we need uh, five planets to supply us resources and absorb our waste. Um, but if every citizen in the world lives like an Indian, we only live 0.7 planet, which is below the threshold of uh, regeneration, the capacity to, of nature to renew itself. So you can see that what we need to do now is to innovate less in the Western world because we already have met all our needs, right? So we are essentially over-engineering products to satisfy overconsumption. So we should stop doing it. But in developing world, uh, as part of, you can call it social justice or environmental justice, we need to innovate frugally and do more and more frugal innovation so that people have a minimum decent standard of living, which they still don't have, right? There are billions of people in the world, right? They don't have access to uh, clean water, sanitation, this is why United Nations have come up with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals to build a more inclusive, fair, and more uh, healthier and sustainable uh, world. So we need to restore the balance right now. So we need to do less wasteful innovation like it's happening in Silicon Valley, and we need to invest more in useful innovation, right, to satisfy the basic needs of billions of people. Very interesting. Thanks for um, also bringing up this uh, beautiful quote from Einstein. Amen to that. Uh, it also helps to just uh, drive the point home that frugal innovation is not about being lazy and just do less. It's really a creative effort and a design effort to reach to the same goal, reach the same goal, or even a better goal, uh, just by using less. So, and this is why we need to clarify that. Uh, engineers and scientists, right? We think that they like to add more features. That's the popular myth. Not really. Uh, if you talk to engineers and scientists, what excites them is to solve problems. So if you present the frugal innovation as a problem, because it is a, about a challenge, right? You're trying to create more value by taking into account more constraints. So it's about trying to resolve an equation with more variables and the variables being constraints. And engineers love that, 
right? So this is why I think that uh, you see that in uh, major education uh, universities like in Europe, uh, in France, Germany, and Switzerland, etc., cetera, uh, Netherlands, uh, there are many universities teaching frugal innovation to engineers and scientists because the young generation of uh, engineers and scientists, they love to solve problems. And, and frugal innovation is, uh, uh, you know, gives them a sense of purpose, right? Because now they can use the technical talent to reduce features <laughs> and still create innovation. And therefore, uh, follow the, the, the quote from uh, Einstein um, and, and actually become a frugal innovator. That's great. Um, as, as far as I can tell or understand the, the, uh, the situation, obviously frugal innovation doesn't need to stop with companies creating products or services. Um, also muni municipalities um, or just public authorities in general or education or science. So I would say all different kinds of stakeholders can uh, make use of that um, mindset. Would you agree? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, during COVID, right, we saw uh, many, many examples of frugal innovation being led by um, local authorities like cities, uh, regions, um, but also by nonprofit organizations. Uh, my famous uh, two examples that I love to share is the one is in Italy, where uh, a doctor, uh, Renato Favero, Uh, in Lombardy region, which was hard hit by COVID in early 2020, uh, teamed up with a designer to adapt a Decathlon a scuba diving mask into a respirator, right? And then what they did is that, that they created a component that could be 3D printed that allows anyone to quickly convert this uh, scuba diving mask into respirator to save, you know, COVID patients locally, wherever they are. And they saved thousands of lives with that. And this solution was possible with the help of local hospitals, uh, Decathlon, the sports retailer, and uh, the design firm that contributed to it. So there was a whole ecosystem that emerged that made this programmation possible. Likewise, we saw also around the world where um, local cities and uh, mayors and, uh, and uh, community leaders basically organized rapidly uh, ecosystems to produce masks using the talent of local uh, you know, uh, tailors and seamstress, etc. And this is also another example of you know, how we saw that uh, you know, the political leaders at the local level recognize that they can rely only on locally available resources, including human resources, right, to respond quickly and effectively to, um, to, uh, to food innovation. And interestingly, one last example, the regulatory bodies, particularly the, the government agency in France responsible for standards and norms, actually came up with a, 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 a simplified regulatory procedure to fast track the approval of respirators and masks so they can be produced very quickly and affordably across France. So that was for me, you know, if I look back, because we are talking in, you know, March 2022, I really want to invite your audience to reflect on how in the last two years in the Western world, at the local level, 
we demonstrated an incredible capacity to self-organize and innovate frugally and collectively by bringing together different stakeholders from the public, private, and civil society. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, in, I always say to people, my hope is that um, we are not going back to normal, but um, take this opportunity to create a new normal, learn from what worked very well, uh, and not restart everything the same way as was before. So take this opportunity to to make these improvements. And um, I could just add, Christian, I mean, the good news is that, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say this is a good news, but it is going to happen, right? Because let's look at, you know, we are, you know, March 2022, look at what's happening, right? The crisis in Ukraine, but also the fact that there's a global recession possibly going to happen in 2022. And if you look at uh, in France, for example, the number one concern of uh, citizens is the high cost of living. So that means that this reminds me exactly what happened in 2008 with the Great Recession, right? So the same way what I think is going to happen is that 2022 will mark the beginning of a growing awareness that we need to not only change the way we produce, but also the way we consume. So the whole movement toward consuming less and consuming better is really going to take off this year. And this is... this shift in the demand side is what's going to force the brands on the supply side to wholeheartedly embrace frugal innovation so they can create systematically product and services that are simultaneously affordable and sustainable to meet the needs of consumers in the West who are increasingly not only cost conscious, but also values conscious. I think you're building an excellent case for why frugal innovation is not just something for the emerging economies or societies, but for everyone also in rich countries. Um, you gave examples of something is um, better with less resources or something is developed faster uh, and all of these things better, faster, cheaper. That's uh, music in the ears of, of businesses uh, usually. And now you're adding even more uh, showing that um, the, the frugal mindset can help for example, with uh, increasingly struggling middle class in also in Western societies, in rich societies. Um, we also had this um, kind of globalization backlash or shock of all these interdependencies. Um, and now this idea to create more resilient and maybe more localized or regionalized supply chains, um, sustainability, circular economy. There are so many uh areas where you can say uh, frugal innovation is a very and I think, good tool. Uh, Christian, let's, let's cite two statistics that I think audience needs to know, right? You're right. Uh, for example, in Europe, uh, 20 to 25% of the European population is at risk of poverty, right? That's a very enormous number, right? And in America, 60% of uh, US citizens don't have $500 to deal with the medical emergency. Right. And so the whole notion of first world, <laughs> we have to challenge now. Right. And, and this is what finally the truth is coming out that essentially, you know, we have, you know, five or maybe 10 percent of the population in the West, which yields incredible amount of wealth. But even the middle class is hollowing out. Right. And the middle class is struggling now. Right? And this is why I think that um, there's a perfect storm brewing now 
uh, which could actually have you know major repercussions on um, uh, capitalism first of all as a system um, and our society as well and I think you're right that's why as you said you know we might see not necessarily a backlash against globalization but um, a move to uh, learn to produce locally and rebuild our local uh, value chains uh, and also learn to consume as much as possible uh, from uh, locally produced items. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, what comes to mind, and I think that's also interesting, a little bit going back to the Renault um, example, um, there was a product created for, um, I guess you could say, low-income uh, consumers. And just in a conversation prior to this recording, uh, we talked about that Let's not forget low-income consumers. I believe you said globally they have a purchasing power of um, $2 trillion. So that's a huge market. And what I think is also very interesting is that um, you might say in the beginning, well, it's especially, I guess, for companies in, in rich societies, um, oh, we, we do not care about um, this low-income market because we want to have the premium customers and so on and so forth. But I guess what you see also with this Renault example is that you might start at the lower end of the market, and you can see it with Amazon as well, um, but who doesn't like uh, the same service for less money with the same reliability, etc.? So if you ignore this mindset or this shift, you risk being disrupted from the bottom up or uh, challenged from the bottom up and you make a very good observation this is also where the notion of frugal innovation joins another well-known concept which is disruptive innovation right so when clayton christensen uh developed the concept of uh, disruptive innovation his idea was that essentially existing companies uh, could be disrupted by rivals that come up with a, a frugal alternative and they will start first by eating, uh, you know, the low end of the market, and then move up the value chain. Yeah, because they can then move in the shadow or in the, um, yeah, the, under the radar, you could say. That's because exactly right. Why should we care about this business that is hardly profitable? Profitable, anyways. And this is what happened with multinationals like Renault, and coming back to Renault as an example, but also Siemens. Uh, Siemens uh, in the healthcare business is when they went to emerging markets like India and China they realized that they had no offering for what we call the entry-level market, right? These are, you know, markets where, you know, middle-class exist, but they can't afford the premium products that Renault and Siemens are selling in the Western world. So they recognized that they need to basically have three segments of products. They need to have a high-end products line, they need to have a middle range, and then an entry-level. And as you rightly said, the entry-level products, they had no offerings there. And the concern was that they may leave the door open to rivals from India and China to come up with good enough cheap products and then eventually start cannibalizing their more lucrative existing markets, right? The middle range and the high range. And that's what led Renault and Siemens particularly to proactively start creating solutions at the entry level to prevent rivals from emerging markets from disrupting them in the long term. I think there's, this is a really powerful uh, 
motion happening in, on that front. And I mean, if even Apple um, starts, um, who is famous for having a very simple lineup and, and premium products, starts offering the pro iPhone, the uh, iPhone uh, kind of 13, whatever, the normal one, and then the iPhone SE, who basically looks the same like, I don't know, seven years ago or whatever, um, even a company as big as Apple is also reacting uh, to this shift. Yeah, I mean, a very good point. As uh, Apple is, uh, as you know, right, is starting to produce now in India so they can reduce the cost of production and therefore slash the price of the iPhone, right? So they're now, you know, looking at selling iPhones uh, or uh, kind of frugal versions of iPhones in India made locally and at a price point that may be 40%, you know, less or even 50% less than um, the West. But the challenge here, and I think we need to highlight this, is that for a company like Apple, which is known for its uh, high-end brand, uh, selling premium products, uh, they cannot completely go to a level of uh, frugality uh, to the point where they sell products that are so affordable that will destroy their brand reputation, right? That's different than the case of Renault uh, because Renault believed that actually when it comes to cars, they can actually have like Logan, Dacia, um, cars that are good enough uh, and they are not marketed as being premium products in the first place, right? But Apple cannot do that because the entire brand, right, is perceived as a luxury brand, so to speak, right? So this is the same issue that uh, luxury brands will face, whether it's uh, Chanel or Hermes, right? They will never, never, you know, uh, market frugal products. However, however, what you need to understand is that you can, uh, these high-end brands can apply frugal innovation in their manufacturing processes, right? To reduce the cost of production, like Apple is doing in India by producing locally their phones, but they can still sell the products at a premium price. So this is something that the audience has to understand is that you can apply frugal innovation in the back end, right? And still sell premium products, or you can apply frugal innovation to also create affordable products at a lower price. Mm -hmm depending on what kind of uh, brand reputation you want to maintain. Mm -hmm. So it's in the one scenario, it's using frugal innovation to kind of um, uh, make your premium larger that you can uh, then maybe reinvest in innovation or whatever. And the other hand is you give it uh, straight to the consumer with lower prices. You pass on the mm -hmm. savings to customer, right? Yeah. So one good example of that I like to share here is uh, the luxury brand um, Hermes. Um, has actually a product line called uh, Project Etch. What they do essentially is that uh, they collect the waste materials from their factories where artisans you know, develop bags and, uh, and other items, luxury items. And then this waste material is then upcycled to make new products, new accessories or you know, uh, new furniture and things like that. And they sell it at a premium price. <laughs> So this is an example of you know a luxury brand applying frugal innovation to make more luxury items. Mm -hmm. I think with um, uh, with this 
kind of conversation, we're already getting into the area of um, how can we now apply it ourselves in our own context. Um, and I think for with the Renault example and Apple example, you already uh, gave one element where I would say one question would be, well, is it easier, more effective or more promising uh, to trying to apply frugal innovation in the existing organization? Or should we create a spin-off or just another brand or whatever? So I guess it always depends. Uh, but what are your thoughts around this question of um, kind of re-educating or rebuilding an existing organization versus, okay, let's build a new one to tackle that? Um, I think both have merits. Uh, so in the case of Renault, let's not forget that uh, they didn't create a separate company, but they made sure that the R&D team that developed the frugal product was far away from the headquarters, right? <laughs> so in the case of the Logan car um, was developed in Romania because the Romanian engineers uh, who grew up under communism had a knack for doing better with less because of the scarcity of resources, right? And then when they launched the car in India, they also relied exclusively on Indian engineers who had the frugal uh, DNA, so to speak, right? Uh, Siemens likewise relied on their Chinese engineers to develop their um, low-cost medical devices. So it means that um, you don't need to create a spin-off, a separate division, but you can actually use your um, uh, regional units in emerging markets to develop these solutions. Uh, but what you need to do, and this is the best practice I've seen that works really well, is that uh, you need to make sure that there are uh, linkages between these remote units and headquarters. And in the case of Renault and Siemens, they made sure that the French engineers and the German engineers worked hand in hand with their counterparts in India and China. Why this is important? Because later, once the frugal products take off and become successful, you want to be able to replicate this knowledge in your core products. Bring it back to the mothership. Mothership, <laughs> right? So to bring back to the mothership, you need to make sure that uh, the mothership doesn't reject this new concept uh, like, a, like a transplant, right? The body rejects the transplant. So that's why sometimes it could be dangerous to uh, experiment with frugal innovation as a spin-off, as in a separate division, because when you're trying to repatriate the knowledge and the best practices, the mothership tends to sometimes reject it. Um, so I would say that the best practice would be to not try it in the headquarters, where it can be killed quickly, but you need to make sure that um, uh, there are some senior leaders in the headquarters who are supervising, overseeing these frugal innovation projects that may be happening uh, in other region, uh, but within the umbrella of the same organization. That is what I've seen as a, being the best practice that is the most effective. Very interesting. Um, what, what I hear here are like um, principles that I would say can be applied in many different contexts. So having this kind of immune response uh, uh, on the radar is, is one principle. Another one I believe to hear in your answer before was 
um, the creators or, or innovators should be very close to the target audience or should be familiar with the target audience. Um, you also already in the beginning of the conversation, you um, mentioned the engage and iterate. So uh, can you add more principles or tactics that have this kind of universal nature? Sure. Yeah, in my book, actually, we identified six principles. So I can quickly overview them and, uh, you know, we can decide which one we want to delve into deeper. Uh, the first principle is uh, engage and iterate, which is the whole idea of, you know, engaging with customers to identify the pain points, rapidly co-create a solution and iterate until you get it right. Uh, the second principle is called uh, flex your assets. This is the notion of you know reusing, repurposing existing assets you have. Uh, and again, they gave the example of Renault, which is reusing an existing car par platform to produce different car models, right? So that's a way of you know reusing, repurposing existing resources. Uh, these resources could be industrial resources. It could be knowledge as well that you can repurpose. Um, the third uh, principle uh, is around this notion of uh, what we call uh, co-creating regenerative solutions. Uh, this is the idea of uh, moving beyond the notion of sustainability, which is focused on reducing carbon emissions and reducing waste, to this notion of regeneration, which is how can we positively contribute to society and the planet. Uh, a good example here is the carpet manufacturer interface, uh, which actually has been uh, releasing now carbon negative carpet tiles. These are products that not only are car carbon neutral, but they're carbon negative. That means that they capture more carbon during the production cycle than they emit. Right, So it's doing more good to the planet than just doing less harm. And uh, similarly, they have built a factory in Georgia in the U.S. that offers positive uh, ecosystem services, things like clean water or clean energy, as a byproduct of the production process that is then offered freely to the local communities. So this is what we mean by regeneration which is a concept that uh, is gradually replacing the whole notion of sustainability. Uh, and then the two other principles have to do with uh, the fact that um, consumers are moving away from being passive users of your products to becoming active co-creators. Because with things like 3D printing, you can now produce your own good Right. So that's why what we are seeing is that uh, in France, for instance, uh, the do-it-yourself retailer Leroy Merlin has set up uh, shops uh, which is equipped with uh, 3D printers and uh, high-end industrial tools where you can go and build your own furniture, for instance. So today we have a model where we go to IKEA to buy a chair. We assemble the chair, but IKEA made the pieces, right? And you just assemble them. But the next phase would be, you know, what if you get into an IKEA store where they give you the tools to make your own personalized mm -hmm. chair. Or they give you the file. Uh, the, you can that's download right. the file download to the, them. That's right. Mm -hmm. So this is, what's this is the principle of what we call co-creation with prosumers. So prosumer is a new word that brings together producer and consumer. 
So in the 21st century, the motto was, I consume, therefore I am. Now the new uh, motto is going to be, I create, therefore I am. Right? So that's the principle of co-creation. And then the sixth principle is the notion of what I call hyper-collaboration. That means that, um, let me give you one example, uh, one statistic. Um, according to McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm, by 2025, one-third of the global revenues of uh, companies will be generated in um, multi-sectorial ecosystems. Take, for example, health or mobility, right? No single industry will be able to dominate healthcare mobility because healthcare is going to be a cross-sectorial uh, service, right? Offered not only by the healthcare sector, but you're going to have connected cars, connected homes, et cetera, that will be tracking your vital signs, et cetera. So that means that um, industries have to come together to collaborate, to co-create solutions. And that is frugal because you don't have to do it all yourself, right? So this is what's gonna happen is that you're going to see, especially in the sectors of health and mobility, you are going to see uh, multi-sectorial ecosystems emerging that are going to co-create frugal solutions. Um, and um, that that's a principle that is emerging. And in the same vein, we are seeing uh, with the idea of what we call business to business sharing, where companies are beginning to share their assets, um, whether it's uh, uh, industrial equipment, or it could be even employees. Um, during COVID, we saw in Europe, like UK and France particularly, where uh, companies uh, uh, loaned their employees to other companies that were in need. So things like employee sharing, asset sharing is taking off now among companies. That's a frugal way of creating value because you don't have to own all the assets yourself, you know. You can actually borrow assets from other companies and use them, whether they are physical assets or human resources, to create value. I hope you are enjoying this episode so far. If you like what you hear, why not collaborate with Sparker on your next business event? Sparker drives strategy and innovation workshops forward as a goal-oriented facilitator. And Sparker can also contribute to your next high-caliber conference as moderator or speaker. If you want to learn more, visit www.sparker.ch moderation. you find the link in the description of this episode. And now back to the rich conversation of this Sparker podcast. Thanks for um highlighting all your principles and also explaining them. And I'm also glad that you brought up um, uh, the ecosystem uh, because I would imagine that um, obviously it's, it's great to, for example, um, offer um, a frugal product or service, but the success is not happening simply by a product. It, it needs the entire, uh, I would say, ecosystem around it. So for example, um, if you have a frugal product, but regulation does not allow it, or these um, international norms or standards like ISO and or consumer protection and all of that, if also kind of the surrounding factors 
are not supporting the um, kind of the shift of the uh, economy, and then I guess we are a bit stuck. Um, how, how do you think about this uh, kind of um, yeah ecosystem or uh, yeah ecosystem component of it all? Yes, and and you're absolutely right. And when you said ecosystem, there are two things, right? One is the fact that you know your own suppliers and distributors have to join you in this effort of developing frugal solutions. And we have seen that, right? I mean, the case of Renault, for instance, uh, they actually, when they went to India, they uh, created the whole ecosystem. As a matter of fact, Gerard de Tourbe, um, the head engineer, uh, who uh, is uh, the father of uh, this uh, 3,500 euro car that was launched in India, uh, he told me that 70% of his time is spent on building the local ecosystem because essentially he has to find the right suppliers who can offer the right good quality components to make the cars right in India that potentially could be exported to other emerging markets. So you are saying that 70% of his time is not to manage the R&D team, but to develop the whole ecosystem so that the frugal innovation can be sustained over time and scaled up. Right? So you're right. It's important that companies pay attention to upskilling, so to speak, right, the entire ecosystem on this frugal innovation journey to make it you know, uh, scalable and viable. There is also the more important stakeholder that you talked about, which is the government uh, agencies, especially the regulatory regulators. But here is some amazing good news here. Uh, the European Commission has published a major report in 2017 on frugal innovation, encouraging companies to learn to produce products that have fewer features in a nutshell. So they're saying that innovation is not about adding more features, it's about reducing features. Right? So it's complete reversal of everything that the European Commission, right, has been telling European companies, right, you know, we need to innovate, you know, more. But now they're saying, no, we need to innovate better, right, in a frugal fashion. So there is support now from European Commission. Uh, there are many initiatives launched at the European level to encourage um, European companies to embrace frugal innovation. You see that in Germany, um, in the um, uh, Bavarian region, uh, where Munich uh, is located, right? Uh, the Economic Development Agency in, uh, in Bavaria um, actually is the, the, the Bayern Economic Development Agency is now uh, creating a unit of frugal innovation to help the middle stand the mid-sized companies in that region to adopt the principle of innovation so they can be competitive both within Europe and potentially sell the products in emerging markets as well. Right? So you can see that there's a whole movement starting now, at least in Europe, right? Uh, at the government agency level, at the European Commission level, et cetera, to create the right uh, regulatory framework, which is uh, proactively supporting the rise of innovation. That's fascinating and great to hear that uh, on all uh, levels and with many different stakeholders, this um, uh, development is happening. Um, and, and I'm just curious maybe to uh, uh, bring it back um, again to, let's say, individual um, business CEOs or uh, leaders of 
of a different kind. Um, you are, I believe, a regular guest, for example, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And obviously there you meet a lot of these uh, different kind of leaders in business or uh, politics and so on. Um, can you tell us kind of maybe with which of the principles or with which of the challenges uh, those people struggle most? Or maybe also which one inspires uh, those leaders the most? I think what happens with the CEOs, uh, especially as we come out of this major crisis, is that uh, it's human nature to be afraid of the unknown, right? So, uh, so when I meet a CEO who says, you know, I'm very interested in food innovation and um, how do we implement, I say, well, you know, maybe you're already doing food innovation without knowing it. So, so my advice now to CEOs is to first identify within the organization, are there some successful projects carried out in the past that have these attributes or features of Rug Innovation, right? And then you can showcase them. And that actually reassures uh, you know, employees that this is not such a radically new idea. Because what happens is like, you know, coming from the US, right? We always introduce you know, a new concept, like a new big idea, right? And Americans love to embrace new ideas all the time. But unfortunately, uh, in 2022, uh, people are more conservative and the CEOs don't want to take too much of a risk, right? So that's why my recommendation to CEOs is like, hey, first of all, look at what within your company has been done before uh, in terms of innovation, and then think about how you can scale them up and give the confidence to employees that, hey, this is a concept that we already master. And now it's just a matter of replicating it and scaling it up. And also learn from other industries or you know, other sectors that can teach you about frugal innovation that you can reapply in your own sector as well. Um, and then the final thing I tell them is that, um, you know, uh, start something small as a pilot project, right? It could be, for instance, you take an existing product and you issue a challenge to your engineers and say, hey, can you redesign this product to make it, you know, 50 times, you know, more affordable and 50 times more sustainable, for instance, right? So this is how you build the frugal muscle, right? So you have to build the frugal muscle of the company gradually. It's like, you know, when you want to lose weight, right? I mean, you can't do that overnight, right? You have to go to the gym every day, exercise many days, and eventually, you know, you become fit. And the same way, you know, companies have to learn to crawl and walk before they can run on the frugal innovation journey. That's why I gave the example of Renault. Renault started the frugal innovation um, journey back in 1999. And today, 22 years later, they have built this incredible muscle, this frugal muscle, right? So it took them 22 years. So the like, same way I would say to all companies and the CEOs is that start small, um, gain confidence, gain trust, the ability to do something different, um, and then gradually ramp up after that. That's for those companies that are more conservative. But I also advise some CEOs, and I think about uh, Paul Polman, the former CEO of Unilever. Uh, Unilever is a major consumer goods company, as you know. He came up with a different approach, which is much more top-down. And he said, you know, in 2010, that by 2020, we will double our revenue while reducing our carbon emissions by 
So that was a top-down strategy that forced all divisions of the company to embrace frugal innovation, right, uh, systematic, systemically. So they can they have to transform all the supply chains, all the products to make them very frugal because there was an imperative coming from the top. So there are two approaches. One is an incremental approach uh, where you, you know, uh, test and learn, you crawl, walk before you can run. Or there is a more radical approach where there's a top-down kind of push to embrace frugal innovation uh, systemically across the entire organization. I think you're lining that out um, perfectly. And in in many projects that I'm involved in, it's um, there's often this element of change management or, yeah, managing change. So uh, what I learned from there is obviously you need to need to be able to make the change, uh, but you also should make the change and you should uh, want the change. So it is can, want, should. And I think you showed that very nicely that um, if you take an existing project from the past, you can demonstrate to the employees it's been done. You can do it. Um, if the CEO or whoever kind of a senior executive said, you should do more of that, it's encouraged. And then eventually, uh, if, if you have this pilot project or this maybe challenge for engineers, I challenge you to make something 50x um, better or cheaper than they also want. <laughs> and so, you, can, uh, you can create like a, a KPIs, right? You can create uh, uh, performance metrics. You can create a bonus system or some companies create an award program. Uh, companies like Tata Group in India have an award program for uh, engineers and employees who actually come up with frugal products that, as you said, right, deliver 10 times more value at 10 times, you know, uh, less cost or using 10 times fewer resources. So these incentives can really help, uh, you know, create a culture of frugal innovation very quickly. I, I'm really fascinated by this conversation and it's nice to see how we started off with um, an innovation method that is kind of originating from developing uh, societies. And now we are slowly but surely um, talking about transforming an entire economy. So there's also this big vision uh, in kind of related to this frugal mindset to also create a frugal economy. Um, and I would assume that for this shift to happen, uh, you would need the technological element. Uh, you mentioned 3D printing once. Uh, there is the uh, shift in society. Maybe you could say this um, uh, idea of sharing economy or minimalism or whatever. Also, this kind of shift is on the horizon. And then I would say business models. Um, you mentioned the um, B2B sharing. So I believe there are many uh, components coming together to to also enable or allow this transformation of the economy to happen. H how do you assess uh, this um, this vision or this trend? It's a good point, right? Because essentially uh, there were different factors that were kind of emerging for the last few years: uh, environmentally consciousness, minimalism, um, and uh, and then. But I think 
COVID particularly did something, right? It, it made it all come together, <laughs> right? So it made us feel more vulnerable. Uh, it made us realize we are all interdependent. Um, and uh, so uh, what is happening now is that uh, you are seeing a major shift in the economic paradigm, right? So we are moving from a traditional capitalist society to what I call a frugal economy. And a frugal economy essentially is an economy that tries to reduce the distance between supply and demand in terms of geography, in terms of time, in terms of values, and I would say maybe in terms of uh, relevance. So let's unpack this, right? So essentially it means that rather than producing, for example, a pair of jeans that you buy today in a store uh, traveled around Earth two and a half times before reach retail store. So you can see how wasteful this is, right? But in France, there's a company called uh, 1083, which actually makes jeans locally in France. 1083 is the number of uh, kilometers that separate the northern part of France to the southern part. So the idea of this guy who launched this startup uh, called the eight, uh, 1083 is to make jeans produced locally, first of all in France, but using local materials, uh, often organic cotton, for instance. So it's more sustainable as well. So this is the first idea, is that essentially you reduce the distance between where the good is produced, where it's consumed, okay? The second this, uh, thing you have to reduce is the time. And during COVID, we saw how much time we were wasting, right? Trying to find a vaccine or even find masks or respirators, right? So that means that we have to find a way to produce faster. And this is where 3D printing could be an interesting technology because you can have a decentralized supply chain where using 3D printing, you can print spare parts in factories, right? Anywhere in the world without having their quarters to ship, you know, uh, spare parts from centralized warehouses. So things like 3D printing could enable the decentralized production, but also reduce the time it takes to produce goods and services, right? And then the other distance that I talked about can be has to be reduced is in terms of values. That means that you are trying to employ local people, local talent, so you create economic value in local communities, and you also preserve valuable expertise and know-how at the local level, right? So this is another benefit as well of having a frugal economy. And then finally, it's the notion of relevance. That means that when you have a localized supply chain, you can quickly respond to personalized needs of individual customers. That means that we can move from a mass production model to a mass customized model. Today, capitalism and the traditional uh, manufacturing model cannot do that. It's not viable. But the moment you reduce the size, you build micro factories, you start creating local ecosystems, rely on 3D printing, etc., you gain in agility. You become more flexible because you're using local resources to sense and respond very quickly to uh, signals from customers, right? So this is what is gonna create more dynamism in the economic system. 
while at the same time making it more inclusive socially and regenerative ecologically. So this is in a nutshell what I mean by frugal economy. It's a virtuous economy that is trying to reduce the distance, the, 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 the huge gap in value and values between production and consumption. That's very fascinating. And um, uh, while you were talking, a thought came to my mind where I say, okay, let's play devil's advocate. I could imagine that when people are listening to this vision that they say, well, but um, what about all the benefits of economies of scale, for example? Uh, I would say maybe traditionally you could say in centralized structures, you have these huge economies of scale. Um, how does that relate to um, the hyper-localized or decentralized uh, system that is in your vision? Um, obviously, you mentioned a lot of benefits, a lot of positives in this decentralized uh, frugal economy. But how do you think about this um, trade-off or is it even a trade-off? So how would you respond to a devil's, uh, to a devil's advocate like no, it's that? A, it's a very good question, Christian. I've been uh, studying it for 25 years. And what I discovered is that uh, uh, there are two economic concepts. There's economies of scale, uh, which relies on mass production. And there is something called economies of scope, right? Which accommodates the diversity of market needs. In other words, the economies of scale are damn good when the needs are homogenous. That means that all customers are saying, I want the same iPhone, right? Then the focus is on efficiency. So economies of scale is about optimizing production to make the same good in large volume, right? Economies of scope recognizes the diversity. So that's the magic term, right? The more the market becomes diverse, the more customers are looking for personalized solution, that's the death knell to mass production and economies of scale. So the logic of economies of scale, which underpins capitalism, collapses. The moment people are looking for customized solution. So this is where you need to have um, micro factories and things like 3D printing, because they can be deployed anywhere in the world and produce in small batches. So instead of producing large volume, you produce smaller volume. So this is what I mean, the shift from large volume, low variety to a new model, which is small volume, but high variety. And we know today that, you know, uh, the holy grail, for example, in healthcare is what we call personal medicine, personalized medicine because each human body is different. So we already are seeing a shift in the manufacturing paradigm in uh, pharmaceutical industry. And uh, lately there's been some exciting announcement um, uh, that uh, the major COVID vaccine uh, producer uh, is actually creating a micro factory that can be shipped in a container to Africa to produce locally drugs. So that means that we are shifting from a centralized production model to a decentralized production model. It's the same drug, same vaccine, but produced faster, better, cheaper in Africa rather than you know, in Germany or you know, in the US. The next step would be to say with uh, genetic information, right? the same micro factory uh, 
can start producing in smaller batches, targeting specific groups or subgroups of a local population. So this is where we're heading next, right? We are moving from the traditional uh, capitalist model that dominated the industrial world for two or 300 years, which is mass production focused on efficiency and optimization of supply chains to a decentralized production model that focuses on generating low volume but high variety to address the increasingly heterogeneous customer markets. I would say the uh, devil's advocate would be checkmate after this uh, excellent um, I, would, I would just add one thing is that this wasn't possible maybe even a few years ago, and you pointed out, because uh, technology advances have made it possible. And we talked about uh, 3D printing, but it's not just that. There are two other technologies that make it possible. Uh, one is AI that automates uh, the ability to identify needs and you know rapidly uh, adapt the production system. AI is going to help that as well as uh, things like Internet of Objects, right? So the Internet of Objects, connected objects, uh, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, quantum computing, these major advances in technologies are going to make this notion of uh, you know, uh, economies of scope and decentralized production reality. It's a... Uh I believe we could go on forever because we're just getting started and it's so uh, fascinating to talk to you. But at the same time, I also want to be respectful of your time. We've been uh, having a great conversation so far. So thanks a lot for uh, this uh, beautiful and inspiring conversation. And just before uh, we stop this um, podcast, I would like to give you the opportunity to if you have um, a thought or uh, something that you would like to leave the audience with before we uh, finish this off, I'm inviting you to, to share. The only uh, advice or suggestion I would give to your audience is that, you know, each of us as uh, a citizen, employee and consumer, right, has a role to play. Uh, in this frugal revolution. So I would just invite you, based on everything you heard so far, is, you know, as an employee, how can you help your company uh, lead the frugal innovation revolution? Uh, as a consumer, you can think about how you can change your purchasing uh, patterns to consume uh, better in a more uh, responsible way. Um, and then as a citizens, think about also, you know, how you can use your voting rights uh, to influence uh, policymakers to create the right uh, regulatory framework that will accelerate you know, the emergence of the frugal economy uh, in your city or in your region. This has been great. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege, Navi. Thanks, Christian, for having me. Thanks again to Navi for sharing his insights and deep knowledge of his many years of researching frugal innovation. For more exciting conversations with leading minds in innovation and leadership, please subscribe to the Sparker podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 
And if you liked this show, please consider leaving a nice rating for the Sparker podcast. That's very much appreciated and it helps the show. I'm looking forward to welcoming you back to another episode very soon, where we'll uncover the mindsets, tactics and insights of exceptional people, organizations and change makers. This is the Sparker podcast, and it was my great pleasure having you with me this episode. I wish you a great day and talk to you soon.